This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AstraZeneca's Your Cancer Program, which spotlights difference makers from across the oncology community who are working to redefine cancer care. Learn more at yourcancer.org. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at The Post. Today we have two sections on technology, innovation, and cancer. And later on, I'm going to be joined by Dr. Eric Topol of Scripps Research. But first of all, I'm delighted to be joined by Dr. Renee Wegerson, who is the new director of ARPA-H, the, the new agency funded in 2022. Director Wegerson, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. So much for having me, Francis. We're delighted. And first of all, so Operage was established in 2022. I think you had a billion dollar budget then and are asking for a lot more right now. Tell us what the acronym stands for and also what the point was behind creating a new agency. Yes, Operage or the Advanced Research Projects Agency for Health was really launched with the idea that we need to create a new agency to augment the existing health ecosystem. Uh, but to move in a way that's more like the DARPA business model. So this is a nod to the original Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency that could go after these uh, big audacious goals, but be able to move forward with very little bureaucracy and with business models that can demonstrate and prove that something is possible in health and then uh, transition very quickly out of the agency uh, into the real world. And so that's what we've been doing uh, this past year to help get this started. Uh, we actually have had a second appropriation. So we are, we are now at uh, $2.5 billion. And you're asking for more for next year, correct? We would love to grow, yes, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Okay, so you mentioned DARPA, but I'm I'm curious about what you see was lacking in other, or what people behind the whole uh, invention of DARPA see was lacking in other agencies. Yes, yeah, so, so there's a few things. I, I think there's a lot of incredible work happening across the, the health ecosystem, but where there were a few gaps was just the speed at which an innovation is happening, but the there's a lack of really the ability to contract and bring new efforts um, into existence in the federal government uh, to move very smoothly. And this is this is where some of our authorities from Congress uh, have been given to us to use things like other transactions, a little bit of government jargon, but really what this means is creating uh, contracts that are feel more of like a business to business interaction um, rather than um, a government to business or a government to, to academia, which uh, can be a little bit of a slow process. And so streamlining that has been important. Um, one essential part of that is also how we make decisions. So uh, our program managers, these are the leaders that manage our investments going forward. They uh, have a lot of autonomy and are the sole decision makers. So they do take perspectives um, from experts in the field, but uh, unlike counterparts such as NIH that uses um, large external study sections uh, to weigh in on proposals, uh, we can take those big risks uh, because we have a much more lean decision-making process going forward as well. So I'm thinking globally here, America has been the innovation capital of the of the world. Uh, there's, there's no doubt about that. But federally funded R&D is in decline. Is America losing that prime spot? What's the big picture here? 
Well, I, I would argue that ARPA-H is a great opportunity to make sure that we don't lose that prime spot and that we can really meet meet at the speed of relevance. But but what has really lagged is this bridge between innovating in a laboratory or a company and then getting it out into the real world. And so some of the foundational work that we've done in this past year is uh, twofold. One is at the very beginning of projects to make sure that we are listening to our customers. Those are the patients. Those are the healthcare providers that may use our tools. Make sure we are designing for them, solving real problems that matter to them. Um, and on the other side, making sure that we are engaging early with investors, whether that's the private sector, again, or other parts of the federal ecosystem, to sustain um, our investment and our, our, our progress longer term. And so um, this is really looking at it very holistically, but making sure that, that our innovation uh, can really continue to allow the United States to, to be dominant and innovating, but also share those innovations um, with the world. So that really brings me to a big question. How do you measure success when you talk about biomedical innovation like this? Is that uh, if, if we're successful, if you even just think back to, to DARPA on, on day one, Eisenhower stood up DARPA. He wasn't saying eight years from now, we're going to have the internet. And after that, we're going to have self-technology, right? So uh, for us, the way that we're measuring success is if we if we have these moonshots that will be realized in 15, 20 years, what are the metrics and the milestones one year from now, two years from now that, that help us understand that we're on track? demonstrating uh, that something that seemed completely uncertain or improbable is actually possible and start to gain those those insights is is key for us and so every new program that we launch for example our first program which is focused on osteoarthritis and having joints heal themselves all across the way we're looking in early days can we manufacture the cells can we demonstrate that they're effective then um, can we bring these into the clinic and can we have positive patient outcomes these are all measures that we will uniquely assign to each and every project that's launched by ARPA-H. So Renee, we want to talk specifically today about cancer and talk about any of the moonshots that you had launched specifically with cancer in mind. Yeah, so, so what was interesting is that in many ways, ARPA-H was inspired by the original cancer moonshot where it showed that uh, a government project with people really focused on specific problems and goals uh, can make significant progress to uh, changing the, the course of, of disease in this country. And so ARPA-H is really intended to launch many moonshots, um, but including addressing some of the objectives of, of cancer moonshot. Um, however, it's important to note that our dollars aren't linked to any specific disease or technology. So on our terms, looking for those investments that are, are very unique to ARPA-H that the private sector can't do because they're too risky, um, we've landed on a few projects um, that we're very excited about. So one is a program called Precision Surgical Interventions, or the SCI program, that brings together innovations in new imaging technology, but also uh, visualization of those tools. Because uh, during surgery for solid tumors today, a surgeon uh, really looks into that surgical cavity in a, in a patient, uh, cuts away at that tumor, and then takes a slice and gives it to a pathologist down the hall and says, did I cut everything out? Did I get it all? Um, if the answer is no, they go back in and they, they keep cutting more. You can already imagine how inefficient this is and how this also leads to many uh, re-operations for, for patients and negative outcomes. It can also lead to damaging um, healthy tissue. So believe it or not, during surgery, uh, cancerous tissue looks like healthy tissue. And so um, unintended consequences such as, as nerve damage can be a really big problem. So this program takes those innovations in imaging um, and in uh, new visualization tools uh, for the surgeon 
and really allows this all to happen in real time uh, during operations. And so that's the goal that uh, this, this program has set out. And they're now selecting the teams that will demonstrate that this is possible and, and bring that innovation forward. Um, one other example I'd, I'd love to point out is a, is a project called uh, Curate, which really takes advantage of some of the mRNA technologies that you've heard so much about. Of course, uh, many of us have uh, doses of mRNA vaccine in our arms right now. And that mRNA can actually be reprogrammed to do many things. Uh, the private sector is looking quite a bit at cancer vaccination. Um, but what we were interested in is a project to actually use mRNA coded tools to actually uh, directly target genes and either tune them up or tune them down. And in this way, you can actually tune your immune response, whether you're responding to a cancer um, or you could use those same tools to uh, respond to an autoimmune disease um, or even to things like long COVID. And so some of these investments we know will be useful for cancer, but will allow us to actually make breakthroughs in, in other areas as well. And so I could go on, but those are just a few of the, of the initial um, really bold ideas in cancer that aren't being addressed elsewhere that ARPA-H can seed um, and advance the state of the art. You know, I, I wanted to sort of get a sense of this. You've talked a lot about the private sector, but also with philanthropy. Just today, the Rockefeller Foundation, you know, uh, announced a one billion uh, action, climate action, people-centered climate action. Earlier on on this program, I spoke to actor Robert Downey Jr. about his FAST grants for climate, both climate examples. And then there was a FAST grants um, set up, I think, out of George Mason University during COVID. How do you see philanthropy either complementing or competing with what you're doing now? Well, uh, if we're doing our job right, we're, we're absolutely not competing, right? There's plenty of problems <laughs> in this world. We absolutely have to work together uh, to advance those goals. But it, importantly, you know, ARPA-H investment is, is transactional. We are, we are here to take on the riskiest things. I, when I think of venture or philanthropy, sometimes what venture might say to a group is, you know what, I'm not ready to fund you now, but come back once you've demonstrated X. We want to fund X. We're willing to take those early risks so that when we can tee up that funding downstream, whether it's from philanthropy um, or, or venture capital. Um, and we're doing this in a, in a more formal way in that we've actually just launched um, what we're calling an investor catalyst hub to even early days bring in investors, um, whether they're philanthropic or otherwise, um, to our program managers as they design these programs to understand not only what are the technical risks, but make sure that we do a market landscape analysis to say, okay, um, in addition to these key players, here are the risks that we need to address on the investing side, or maybe it's a regulatory risk that investors need to see de-risked uh, to pick up those projects downstream. And so we're working very closely. Um, in fact, I'm joining you now right after uh, a, a Milken event here, again, with a lot of philanthropists here, are really trying to find creative ways that we can move forward. I love that you mentioned, you know, fast <laughs> grants and some of these other ways. Um, it's actually really hard to work with the government and, and this investor catalyst um, hub, we've also designed it in such a way we want it to be simple. We don't want you to have to have this sophisticated grants writing shop as a requirement to work with the government. We want we want to work with small communities. We want to work with three person startups, um, and we want to make it as simple as a, a form fill on a website uh, to to work with us. And that's really what we're striving for. I'm so, I've got so many questions. I do want to ask you about the potential for innovation in this country to get held up in development or not to scale once you come up with these great innovations. And it's particularly true, it seems to me, in health that America time and again comes up with the great ideas and then in healthcare, it doesn't get spread across the, the country. 
That's right. And, and, you know, we did the exact same thing. You're addressing some of these gaps as we are standing up this agency. We said, what are the things that are just fundamentally a blocker to prevent uh, really a, a resilient healthcare system, for example? Um, one of those is scale. And so we actually, one of our focus areas for investment is a technical office called Scalable Solutions. Uh, we are hiring a leader for that office. So this is a great platform to invite folks that would love to come to government and just demonstrate that scale. How do we get things out of the lab really scaling in the real world and in a cost-effective and accessible way that everybody can reach them, whether you're in a rural setting or you're even at home hundreds of miles away from a healthcare center. Um, that, is, that is a place that we know there's a tremendous gap uh, that we want to, to make sure we're addressing. Um, and then fundamentally, this nationwide network that we're calling ARPANET H, uh, we, have, we have launched to bring together um, our innovators um, at ARPANET H, our program managers, the teams that we fund with communities all across the United States to then to partner with them and demonstrate sometimes at a very small scale, maybe it's at the scale of a home or a hospital to show that it's possible, but then have that connectivity across this network to then really spread this as quickly as, as possible. If it's a great innovation, we've got to get it out there. So back again, specifically to cancer and this issue of equity, which you yes. raised, is your goal ultimately to cure, er eradicate cancer or to diagnose it more quickly? Or give me a little bit of a picture on how you're coping with that, with these huge health inequities. Yeah exists here. So, so to say something like I, I, I want to cure cancer is a tremendously bold statement, um, and it wouldn't be kind of the, the typical way Art and ARPA would approach a challenge. Instead, we would say, what are the blockers to getting to those cures? And some of that is scale. Some of that is the ability to be able to make genetic therapies in a cost-effective way and in a more universal way. Um, and then the other would be, for example, personalized therapeutics for very, very rare cancers where you don't need a billion doses. You need you need one dose and you need to be able to get to a patient very quickly. And so each one of those represents um, a program that we could initiate and launch um, around those areas to solve the barriers that would be presented. And if we're successful, we'll be able to uh, you know, really buy down the risk again. So whether it's a company or maybe we even launch a company to do this, um, to, would be able to pick this up, take this into um, the clinic and, and make this a reality. So Renee, RPH's stated goal is to improve health outcomes. We at the Washington Post have just done a deep dive into life expectancy. And for years and years, of people have you know, said that primary care is the area we need to put money into. They actually don't talk a lot about innovation or high-end tech here. It's the most basic yeah. uh, forms of entry-level care. Tell us about where you think RPH could help in that. HHS came out just yesterday with um, its initiative to strengthen primary care. What can ARPA-H do to turn around America's huge decline in life expectancy? Yeah, so uh, we saw the article here at ARPA-H uh, from the Washington Post and passed it around because I, I think it's such a great example of, of some of the gaps that still remain that, that we must address. Um, life expectancy, not just across this nation, but um, as we've traveled around the country, it, it really has struck me how many towns we've been in where literally you could be, uh, Chicago's a great example, the south side of Chicago, you look to the north side of Chicago, and there's a 20-year gap in life expectancy literally across the city. Um, and so how are we in a hyper-regional way starting to, to demonstrate you know, pilot experiments to show that we can make progress um, against not just life expectancy, but better better quality of life and then and then scale that across the nation would be one example. You mentioned primary care. Um, this is a place that we've talked to a lot of primary care physicians and what they all want to do. They're like, I came into medicine because I want to help people and I want to engage with people. I spend a lot of time 
writing in these electronic health records. How much more of that can you automate um, and, and really help me refocus on the patient? And so this is an area through our investments in things like the, the biomedical data fabric toolkit program, where we want to automate as much as we can some of the more uh, mundane and standardized tasks and leave that those specialized tasks, whether it's a healthcare provider, um, a primary care physician or a surgeon, let them focus on and be at the top of their license when they're performing their profession. And so these are initiatives that we've just launched um, and you should start to see hopefully some solutions coming out of those in the coming years. A very quick last question, and it's a big one, I'm afraid. President Biden said he wanted to cut cancer, cancer death rates by 50%. How optimistic are you? And I'm afraid we're running out of time, so a quick answer. Yeah, well, just like any moonshot, you have to shoot for the moon and, and, and try everything <laughs> yeah. you can to get there. And sometimes you will fail, but if you're shooting for the moon, even if you get halfway there, that's a, that's tremendous progress. And so, so every single one of our projects, we will be shooting for the moon to try to get as close to that gap, um, closing that gap as possible. Dr. Renee Wagazin, thank you so much for joining me today and for leaving us with that positive and inspiring message. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. I'll be back soon with Dr. Eric Topol. The following segment was produced and paid for by Washington Post Live event sponsored. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Welcome. Today we'll be discussing the path forward for early cancer screening for marginalized populations. My name is Dr. Gladys Rodriguez. I am a medical oncologist at the Star Center for Cancer Care, and I specialize in treatment of patients with breast cancer. I also serve on the board of director AFSCO, and I'm humbled to be the first Latina in the board. As a Latina oncologist, since early in my career, I had focused on improving oncology care for those of marginalized or minority populations. And about 30 years ago, I was honored and to meet and collaborate with Dr. Amelie Ramirez, who is joining me today in this discussion. Thank you so much, Gladys. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, my name is Dr. Amelie Ramirez, and I am Professor and Chair of Population Health Sciences at UT Health San Antonio. My area of expertise is in behavioral health and health communications. And um, I've been working in this area for, for many years now with a special focus on the Latino community and helping them understand the importance of prevention. Uh, and so we have focused on a lot of different cancer education programs and different strategies to try to make a difference in our population. So today I'd like to ask Gladys, Gladys, with all that you've done, can you tell us a little bit about why it's really important to do early screening so that we can help our population, uh, especially those that are living with cancer? Yeah, for a patient diagnosed with cancer, we know that the earliest the diagnosis, the better the survival. The smaller the tumor, the less aggressive treatment somebody needs. So they need less surgery, less chemotherapy, less radiation. And we know that the earliest it is, the better they live, the, the less likely that the cancer will come back and they will need a then uh, additional aggressive treatment. Um, and there are some interventions that have been proven to improve that survival. Mammography, for example, for breast cancer, colonoscopy or the use of CTDNA for colon cancer screening. And then for those that had history of smoking and quick smoking, you had to quit smoking, uh, the use of CT of the chest, low dose CT chest to diagnose low cancer early. And again, the earliest it is, the better for the patient, less treatment and better survival outcomes. So I know that you had uh, done a lot of work in uh, understanding uh, what kind of interventions are effective in improving screening. Could you share some of those with us? 
Yes, well, one of the reasons we went into this work is that, you know, we find that uh, cancer has now become the leading cause of death for Latinos, even though their incidence may be lower. Uh, we're finding that they're waiting too long, and so therefore they're being diagnosed at much later stages, and sometimes those treatments may not work for them. And so that's why, again, that early screening is so important. So some of the work that we have focused on is um, both at the community level and also at the in-clinic uh, level. Um, and we utilize both mass media communications where we use cultural uh, approaches in English and Spanish in reaching our population, but we have also found it to be very effective to work with community health workers. And these are individuals from the community who have volunteered to say they want to do more for their communities, and we train them on different subject matters. And we find that when we pair community education and outreach through uh, mass media, radio, television, newspaper, and now social media, and pair them with a community health worker, we get more people interested in coming in for screening. And then we said, if this is working at the community level, can we make it work for us uh, in the clinic level? And so we actually found that placing a community health worker in the clinic, along with a physician and PAs and other individuals, that this was still someone um, that it was easier for the patients to relate to. And we saw that they were more likely to keep their appointments and, uh, and um, be, be uh, consistent about coming in for their screenings. And now the third level, we are working with our primary care clinics, looking at social determinants of health to see who needs a little bit of extra help to come in for screening, but also find out those who haven't been screened for all the, the uh, different areas that you just mentioned. Uh, and so then our community health worker, um, the physician puts that person in what we call the basket, and then our community health worker can follow up with that patient to encourage them to come in and make an appointment uh, for screening. So that we, oh, these are some of the techniques that we have found to be uh, very helpful. Yes, this is uh, very important because, um, as you mentioned, although the incidence of cancer in the Latino population are also in the Black American population is lower than the non-Hispanic whites, um, the mortality is a lot higher for both for those both populations. The Hispanic population is the uh, faster growing uh, minority group. And thereafter, this will impact the overall survival of our communities if we don't do interventions earlier to improve those. I also want to mention that uh, for the Latino population, the highest mortality are associated with infectious related cancer, cervical cancer and human papilloma virus and um, uh, liver cancer and hepatitis C virus. For both of which there are now interventions in terms of vaccine therapy and screening that uh, it's not used at the same level for minorities or underserved populations. And, you know, we're making such a big difference too, right, in working with our clinicians and the importance of better understanding if some of our cl uh, clinicians have, you know, certain cultural biases that may affect how they communicate with their patients and, and really encourage them to look at themselves. We all carry some kind of bias and it's important for us to do self-assessments about ourselves and to, to better understand how we're communicating with our patients and, and our community. So these are just some of the new techniques that, that we're you know, implement, uh, implementing. So can, can you talk about any other um, approaches? Yes, uh, yes definitely. So um, 
part of my uh, work has been in improving the, the number of uh, underrepresented uh, physicians that are Latino or underserved community. I'm funding uh, research grants, research opportunities, uh, programs for rotations for, uh, and we're actually now reaching to uh, high school level and early college because if we don't have more physicians that look like the patients that they're serving, uh, we're not being doing the best possible. So in that respect, I think that uh, there's a lot to do and uh, we look forward to continue doing so. Yeah, no, what great discussion, right? We need to continue doing more. And now I'd like to turn it over to the Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Hello, for those of you just joining us, I'm Frances Steed Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. And I am delighted now to be joined by cardiologist, Dr. Eric Topol, who is the executive vice president of Scripps Research. Dr. Topol, a very warm welcome to Washington Post Live. Thanks so much, Francis. Great to be with you. And I have to say, I'm also a great fan of your Ground Truth Substack. And I know that you sometimes post interviews, so I'm looking forward to turning the tables on you. Yeah, which, this I think was a really interesting one I put together on cancer, which might have piqued some interest about why we need to completely upend the way we screen for cancer today. So I want to ask you first, Dr. Topol, about a book you wrote in 2019, which was called, let me get the title right, How Artificial Intelligence Can Make Healthcare Human Again. When you look back five years on, do you think, whoa, I was right back then? Well, yeah, the actual title was Deep Medicine, and the whole idea is that we could use AI to bring back the humanity, the humaneness in, in medicine. Uh, we're not there yet by any means, Francis, but uh, eventually I do think we have that potential. Back then, um, we didn't have these so-called large language models that could bring in, whether it's images, text, uh, and speech, audio together. And now we're seeing that, and soon we're going to have the entire corpus of medical knowledge in real time up to date. So this is going to bring uh, information uh, at a level that we've never seen before at our fingertips. And that, I think, will help us as long as we get it right. So you're talking in a way about, you know, five years ago, we weren't thinking about generative AI or these huge uh, models that are transforming things now. So update me a little bit. For many of us, it was sort of last November when we became aware of generative AI. Obviously, it had been around before that. But it was a massive transformational movement and interest among the general public. What does it mean for medicine? Well, it has profound implications. Um, so up until, as you said, the release of ChatGPT uh, end of November, a year ago, uh, we didn't really see these so-called transformer models take hold. They were incubating for these five or six years, but we didn't see them uh, in action. And what they have done uh, is, is actually quite extraordinary because when you get to the level of GPT-4, which uh, has over a trillion connections. Our brain has a hundred trillion, but this is a trillion connections, and it uses massive computing power, you know, over 24, 25,000 graphic processing units. So it can take in, you know, the, the uh, human content, uh, not just Wikipedia and hundreds of thousands of books and the internet uh, content, and now, of course, it's also with GPT-4 doing this with images and audio. So you have this 
extraordinary amount of content, uh, which even now hasn't been trained specifically for medicine, but it's turned out because it has so much of the medical literature in it, that it, it, it's, it's providing us uh, a resource that's just quite extraordinary. The question is, how are we gonna use this properly? How are patients going to access this to get much better results than they can get currently from a search on the internet? Uh, and also, how can it change the life uh, for doctors and nurses as they care for patients? So let's step back from that question a bit because we've had AI around for quite a long time and doctors have been using it. So give me a couple of examples of how it has already transformed, transformed sorry, either cancer diagnosis or treatment. Just a couple of real everyday examples from a doctor. Sure. Doctor. Well, you know, one big one is that, you know, the very difficult cancer diagnoses to make, like pancreatic uh, is a good example, or ovarian, where they typically show up when a patient has got already pretty um, advanced metastatic cancer and the chance of getting uh, recovery, uh, preventing uh, this from being terminal is very low. But now what we've seen are studies that look at the electronic health records, uh, what's in the formal record or what's even in the unstructured text, and they're able to predict the risk uh, so much better. And that's just the electronic health record that someone is at risk for, let's say, pancreatic cancer. Then when you start to fold in other layers of data, like uh, the genome, so-called polygenic risk score, or the gut microbiome, uh, you start to get to levels of prediction to define who's at high risk that we never would have anticipated, and it's happening very quickly. And this is really encouraging. So I wanted, we've just done a big project at the Washington Post about life expectancy, and one of the things we learned when doing that reporting was how people are developing cancers younger, bowel cancers, for example, in very young people. How do you see AI helping us to reverse this decline this is all part yeah. of the decline in life expectancy, to help us reverse that process, particularly with these cancers which are emerging sooner with young people. Well, Francis, uh, I'm so glad you asked about that because this really uh, is a serious issue. I mean, we're seeing people in their 20s with colon cancer and women in their 20s or 30s with breast cancer, and it's increasing, as you pointed out in your Washington Post series. and. The problem we have is cancer screening is so dumbed down. It uses age as the sole criterion, but it doesn't acknowledge that some people are at risk uh, at much earlier ages for manifesting you know, serious forms of cancer. So we have to change our whole mindset that is just a simple matter of age because most people at a given age are not really at risk for cancer. You know, oftentimes age 50 now for uh, breast cancer, mammography starting at age 40. Uh, there's a lot of waste in our cancer screening. And instead, we don't do fine, which we can today, people at increased risk. And that's the way we could find out that some young people uh, have exceptional high risk uh, and start getting over this uh, very primitive notion that it's just uh, age as a sole criterion. So I want to talk to you a little bit more about regulation because we're talking very optimistically about what AI can do. And I know you have had concerns about the FDA having, sh I think you used the term shortcuts. 
tell us a little about what you meant with that and what risks you see even as we evaluate these extraordinary innovations. Right. Well, this is a real sore point because we have almost 650 AI algorithms. Uh, they're all essentially pre-transformer. They're, they're not generative AI. They're the deep learning phase of AI that preceded this. But almost all these algorithms uh, are from companies that have never published the data. So it's completely opaque. Most of it is retrospective. It's not tested in the real world of caring for patients. The medical community doesn't ever get to see it. It's so-called proprietary. The data uh, sets are often weak. And so the criteria at the FDA for, for granting uh, clearance or approval for AI in healthcare has been dreadfully low. And that's not a good harbinger of where things will go now that we're into this new phase of multimodal generative AI, uh, which can complicate matters further. So we have to tighten up the criteria and get more compelling evidence because overall we're seeing very low implementation in healthcare systems, partly because we can't see the data. And also, when we can, uh, it's not the kind that would drive, uh, you know, a, a wide-scale adoption. So we need better research, and we need tightening up at the FDA. So, Eric, one of the things I hear from uh, people who write in all the time is concerned about health equities. You've raised it. Our previous speaker did. Um, when it comes to AI, we're feeding in data from the past. We know that it has inherent biases in it. Aren't we at a huge risk of just perpetuating and maybe even expanding on the problems we have if we're feeding in data from the past? Well, the key thing you just said is the problems we have. It's not the AI fault. It's that we have yeah. such embedded, deep cultural biases. So uh, we don't want to blame AI on that per se, but we do have to revise our way of evaluating the inputs, how, how um, the bias could affect what comes out of uh, these algorithms. And that takes very careful uh, interrogation and scrutiny and not to release, uh, not to use any of these algorithms before that has been thoroughly interrogated. So we've seen lapses in that in the past, and that's something we can't tolerate. Part of this will be improved when we have really great diverse uh, data sets that go into the formation. And like I said earlier, a lot of the things that have been used by the FDA are very small, non-diverse, mm -hmm. that is, from the from the people. So we've got to do better there. Which brings me another, to another question about technology, because it used to be that clinical trials really only uh, accepted people who were close to large medical centers. Everything required people to go in. And now we're beginning to see, particularly after COVID, clinical trials expanding to be done remotely. I mean, I think there was one out of Yale recently that's entirely remote. Is this the kind of innovation that could really change uh, the diversity of people coming into clinical trials and change cancer screening? And Absolutely, Francis. We've been a big proponent of this for several years because when you can roll people through smartphone apps and the web, you reach people uh, that uh, previously would, you wouldn't get to be participants, whether it's rural, whether it's you know the diversity. Uh, and so we've seen this to be not only a, a great way to accelerate medical research, but also uh, to make it much less expensive 
and a far better uh, and larger uh, participant pool. So this is the wave of the future. Uh, it, at the moment, it isn't used so much to test things like a new drug or a new device, but that's where it's headed and not so much the reliance and the great expense and all the dysfunction that occurs in health systems to get these uh, research projects done. You mentioned pancreatic cancer, you've talked about colon cancer and uh, breast cancer drink. If you look at, if you were to, to guess where the next rate breakthrough is going to happen in cancer through AI or another technological innovation, let's not stop just with AI, where, where's your greatest hope? Well, I think cancer is ripe for, you know, this upending. And I know you're well aware of these multi-cancer early detection tests where you get from a tube of blood in someone who's healthy, uh, you can find cell-free tumor DNA that's circulating in the plasma. And then you can analyze that if the person, you know, may have unsuspected early, early cancer, long before it would be ever seen by a scan. So when you start to be able to pick up cancer so early, uh, and you can also define people who are at risk uh, not just by age, of course, as we discussed. And we have these potent ways to rev up the immune system to squash whatever early cancer before it even has a chance to proliferate or spread. This is a recipe or a blueprint, if you will, for really changing the fate of cancer. We didn't have this capability. And of course, these tests that are just now starting to become available, they're misdirected. I mean, the yield of the test that has the most uh, uh, use so far with over 100,000 people using age 50 as the criteria, again, uh, is, is um, only finding five out of 1,000 people uh, who have unsuspected cancer in their blood. And, and half of those people are uh, with advanced cancer, where finding it is not, uh, it's not as helpful as when you find it extremely early, like stage one or two. So, we have to find the people at risk and then use the tools that we have. And we can do far better uh, for prospects in the future uh, for preventing cancer and preventing its uh, adverse outcomes. Which takes me straight to a question I wanted to ask you about primary care. And it's one I posed to Director Wagazin. And that is that in this country, we're seeing a decline of people having primary care doctors. We're seeing a decline in doctors going into primary care. And unless we improve those things, how are we ever going to get people into screenings? What's, is, is there a way that AI and technology can help with these almost pre-primary care problems and identifying problems before they come to the doctor's office? Well, we do need ways uh, to make the efficiency for each physician uh, better and also their lives better. As you know, the, the morale, the burnout crisis that's global, but particularly here in the U.S., We've got to deal with this. And this is, again, where AI can, can really make a difference. It already is starting to by getting rid of the data clerk function and moving us towards keyboard liberation so that when doctors see patients, they can actually see them and spend time with them and cue in and listen to them. Uh, and uh, this is something that every physician, particularly primary care physicians, want to do but they've been so burdened as data clerks, not just in the midst of seeing patients, uh, not even having you know face-to-face eye-to-eye -face, -eye contact, but also with hours of this kind of work uh, after uh, seeing them at the end of the day 
or in the evening. So this is a real problem. We've got to make the lives of physicians better so they are really caring for patients. And that will attract more people to go into primary care. Uh, plus it will make the morale, which is low, it'll make it so much better. This is part of that improving the humanity in medicine for patients as well as for clinicians. Well, Eric, a couple of weeks ago on this show, I was lucky enough to talk to a doctor about um, a, a system that essentially provided you with avatar doctors avail available 24-7 for your primary care, I think 15 bucks a month. When I can't reach my primary care doctor, it sounds very inviting. Is that the way of the future? It marries AI with this huge problem we've identified in primary care. Well, and I don't know that that's the real solution, Francis, but I do think doctorless screening of common conditions, whether it be a skin, a rash or a lesion or, or a urinary tract infection, even heart arrhythmias through smartwatch detection and um, ear infections in children and a long list. We're seeing AI making very accurate diagnoses. And so that would, of course, diffuse uh, the contact, you know, make it much more practical and timely and inexpensive to get the answers to then if, if, a, if a treatment is needed or oversight is needed by a physician. So we're going to see more charge taken by patients, more autonomy. Uh, whether avatars will fit into that, that remains to be seen. But all these things require very careful, rigorous prospective studies to validate that they work well. And we're starting to see that now, and that's that's also a very positive sign. So you had your book five years ago. You essentially were predicting the future then. <laughs> Predict the future for me is the last question. Take me five years from now. Where's the, what do you see and with this huge change in innovation? Well, you know, I do think we're moving to a whole different type of medicine where if we get the gift of time and re, reboot the patient-doctor relationship, which has had serious erosion. That would be the overarching goal so that we can restore this vital uh, presence and trust and compassion and empathy, which is what patients uh, are, are wanting. So if I had to project you know, five years from now, not only will we improve accuracy using these large language models, generative AI, uh, and being able to make diagnoses more accurately, particularly when they're complex. But my fondest hope, the one that we really have to keep our, our um, clear-eyed objective, is to get back this relationship, which has suffered so much because of the, the issues that we've had to grapple with. So let's hope that we can do that. Let's hope we can reboot the doctor-patient relationship. Dr. Eric Topol, thank you so much for joining me on Washington Post Live. Thank you, Francis. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.